News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. It was the first prime time address last night by U.S. President Joe Biden, and he had quite a few things to announce, actually. So let's break it all down now with the help of our Global News Washington correspondent, Reggie Giacchini. Good morning, Reggie. Good morning. Boy, that was a different tone we heard last night, wasn't it? It was. I mean, look, we had Joe Biden acting as both a commander in chief and an empathizer in chief, trying to, you know, explain to a country that they are bonded together by the uh, disaster that's taken place over the last year that has not really left anybody or any family untouched. And he really tried to speak to the American people in a tone that they may understand, but it is also going to try to draw them in. Uh, to, to kind of, you know, push towards the end, because at the end of the day, the U.S. is getting closer and closer to finally exiting this crisis. Yeah, let's talk about that. What were some of those significant moments, do you think, that he where he pointed out what's going on in the United States? I think the biggest moments for him uh, were the dates that he was circling on the calendar, saying that by May 1st, he intends to direct all states to make all adults over 18 years old eligible for the vaccine, and saying by July 4th that the U.S. really could find independence from this uh, virus uh, and be allowed to have people gathering in backyards for summertime barbecues. No, that comes with a risk uh, if the dates don't happen because things get in the way, right. like the, these mask mandates that are being rolled back across the country. But at the end of the day, giving optimism to a, a kind of devastated nation, um, it, it's, it's what they've been waiting for. Right. And they're actually moving like full speed ahead with the vaccinations, too, aren't they? Absolutely. I mean, look, just a couple of days ago, the president met with the uh, heads of Moderna, of rather Johnson and Johnson and Merck to procure an additional 100 million doses later on this year, which is going to really make the U.S. a vaccine powerhouse. There is going to be so many doses. There will be so many doses running around this country that realistically, if the goal is met to have the entire population vaccinated by the end of May or the beginning of June, that's going to leave the country uh, sitting on incredible stockpiles of vaccine. They've already promised to work with COVAX, but they are holding back on any announcement to whether they're going to share these on either side of the border into Canada or Mexico, fully saying that these uh, that, that the countries themselves need to get their virus under control before they start getting vaccines uh, across the borders. That is so interesting. So that you feel that they're kind of setting it up for America to use themselves as a vaccine powerhouse. Well, it's very possible. I mean, look, there are three of them underway right now. And the vaccine numbers across the United States are really uh, are beating expectations. You know, more than two million people per day are receiving a vaccine. More than 10 percent of the population has both of their doses, at least. Uh, and, and those numbers are going up significantly that if they get these vaccines done by May, by June, uh, even by the beginning of July, there are still going to be millions upon millions of doses that are being uh, uh, sat on uh, in states. And the U.S. is going to have to figure out what they want to do with that. But I should say that there are still problems with trying to get the vaccines administered. The, the U.S. is now going to start allowing medical students and dentists and veterinarians to start administering the shots solely because they need the manpower. Right. And they're deploying some troops, too, as well, right? Yeah, look, the military has been heavily used since the very beginning of this pandemic, whether it was in the building of those field hospitals very early on or whether it was trying to deal with some of the aftermath. And now they're going to look upon uh, calling upon uh, active members of the military with medical backgrounds to also utilize them uh, to try and get shots out. And this is solely to try and get that goal, not only of Joe Biden's 100 million in 100 days, but solely to get the entire country uh, vaccinated as best they can to try and stave off any kind of potential 
wave that may still be threatening. Would you say this has been a good week for the president, given that he managed to get his first piece of legislation passed as well? Yeah, I mean, look, that was huge as well. He was able to do that in his first 50 or 51 days, and that is hundreds of days before any uh, president, five or six before him, uh, when they were able to get major legislation signed into law. Now, we have to point out it was $1.9 trillion. It was passed on a party line. There wasn't a single Republican who jumped on board, but nonetheless, it does offer another road to recovery for a, a financially struggling country and for the financially struggling American, Republicans pushed back and said, look, this is just too much money and it goes too far into Democratic priorities that have nothing to do with COVID. But at the end of the day, this is the same GOP that voted for trillions of dollars worth of tax cuts and COVID relief under former President Donald Trump. So it's slightly hypocritical for them to now try to claim that fiscal responsibility is all they care about. Right. And what have the polls said, Reggie, about the popularity of that package that was passed? Look, 75% of Americans wanted to get this $1.9 trillion COVID relief bill passed, and that included something like 46 or 47% of Republican voters. And this could come back to haunt the GOP in 2022 if it starts to get out there more wildly, uh, that the Republicans were pushing back on giving, you know, assistance to the people who needed it most. Republicans are saying, look, we don't need to deal with climate change. We don't need to deal with transportation and infrastructure. But at the end of the day, that will also lead to jobs. And there are still roughly 20 million million Americans in this country who don't have a job right now. Okay, so what are the next steps here then from the president? Is it just all vaccines right now? It's going to be all vaccines, and he's going to actually start a tour going around the country uh, to try and tout uh, the the recovery plan and the vaccine effort. Uh, they'll be in Georgia uh, in the next couple of days, both he and the vice president. But it really is going to be focused on on vaccinations uh, and really trying to get as many people vaccinated as possible. Uh, but I should point out, there is some political pushback to this vaccine effort. Ten states, Simi, are actually pondering bills right now that would allow people to opt out of a vaccination or uh stop institutions from having to mandate these vaccinations uh, because they feel that it still should be personal choice uh, because vaccines really aren't mandated across the country. There is pushback for this. So there is still an opportunity here, which is worrisome for members of the CDC and for people like Dr. Fauci, that politics is still getting in the way of getting people vaccinated, even though you have this kind of positive uh, aura coming out of the White House. All right. Interesting. All right, Reggie, thank you. Thank you. Reggie Giacchini, our Global News Washington correspondent, talking about the different atmosphere coming out of Washington, D.C. these days. thing about the vaccine is, and I think we have found this with surveys in Canada uh, as well, and that is maybe somebody might have been reluctant, but when you look around and you think, oh, this is the key to getting everything back to normal, this is the key to being able to travel and do all that, and everybody else seems to be doing it, and there doesn't seem to be you know, a problem, I think that's how you overcome that vaccine hesitancy with some groups. Not to say it isn't out there. It is definitely out there. But I think the more people do it and it's a normal thing and everything is fine, you will, I think you will see that hopefully melt away a little bit more. In the United States, though, as Reggie was pointing out, they are really full speed ahead on their vaccinations. They lifted eligibility qualifications. And one of the things that President Biden announced last night is that every adult should be vaccine eligible by May the 1st. And by July the 4th, which is, of course, their Independence Day, they figure that they'll be able to get things back to normal in the United States. They've also deployed 4,000 active duty troops to help support vaccination efforts. And they're allowing more people, such as medical students, veterinarians, dentists, to help deliver those shots. So it is a huge undertaking in the U.S. And it is impressive the way it is full steam ahead there. This is Mornings with Simi. 
You, know, you hear the news and you worry a bit about this, about the AstraZeneca concerns, right? We know that Thailand and at least nine European countries have now hit the pause button on their use of that AstraZeneca vaccine. That doesn't mean there are any plans, though, to stop using the shot here in Canada. So first, let's get a little background on this from Global News' Sandy Salerno. Health Canada says they are keeping an eye on investigations in Europe after reports some people got blood clots after getting their AstraZeneca shot. So far, there is no indication that there is a link between the clots and getting the vaccine. And while the pause may be cause for concern, some health experts say it should help people feel better about vaccines in general, not worse. This should inspire them with more confidence about all of the vaccines, that there really are systems in place to make sure that they are in fact safe, not only in the trials, but but right throughout their deployment. Health Minister Christine Elliott says there are no plans to discontinue using AstraZeneca at this time. Several million doses have already been administered around the world with no adverse effects. In a statement released last night, Health Canada said none of the identified badges under investigation have been shipped to Canada. Sandy Salerno, Global News. All right, so that's what we're looking at right now. It's just a pause while they take a look at things, right? Uh, Now, we talked to Adrian Dix about this, the health minister, yesterday, and I asked him about it, and he said, you know, they're overwhelmingly they believe that AstraZeneca vaccine is safe. They don't see a problem with it. It has been well-researched. And Dr. Henry was also asked about it yesterday during the COVID-19 briefing. And this is what she had to say. We've been following that very closely, particularly Denmark and Finland were the two areas uh, uh, of concern. Um, and uh uh, and Switzerland had some issues as well. So this is part of, of what we do, the adverse events following immunization. Um, it's understanding what happens in every single individual in the period of time after they receive their immunization. Um, and it's part of this, the information that we provide as well. It's on the, uh, uh, through the BCCDC, we have a system that does that. We have not seen any of those types of uh, issues here in BC, although we've only just started using the AstraZeneca vaccine. I will also say uh, that we look at everything by lot number and that was what uh, um, was the issue in 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 uh, Denmark in particular and also in Switzerland, it was a particular lot number where they had very small numbers of events. So it was uh, two people and, and three people from what I understand. We were on a call this morning with the regulator, Health Canada, and uh, with uh, uh, our special advisory committee and our uh, Health Canada, our regulator is sharing information with uh, the regulators from EMEA, from uh, European Union to understand this. We see this frequently with new products, new vaccines, that if there's a safety signal that comes up that's related to a specific lot number, we put a hold on that until those can be investigated. But what we understand is there's several different types of events that happen. So a blood clot in the lungs, a blood clot in the legs, a heart attack. And the investigators look at each individual one and make a determination of whether it's related to the vaccine or not. Um, we also look at you know where else has the vaccine been used, and there's been uh, millions of doses, tens of millions of doses now being used in the UK, for example, and these same safety signals have not happened there. 
Okay, so that's a great explanation then. Very thorough from Dr. Bonnie Henry. That was my first reaction when I heard about uh, some of these countries suspending the AstraZeneca, you know, temporarily vaccine. I thought, well, wait a minute. This is the vaccine that has been huge in the UK. That's the one that they have widely, widely used there. And they didn't seem to have these problems with it. So great explanation there. BC thinks, you know, everything is fine. Canada thinks that things are fine on that, but they will continue to monitor the situation. And by the way, some of the modeling data yesterday, so fascinating because they showed what might have happened if people hadn't started to get vaccinated in BC versus what is happening now. And their early estimates that they can see there suggest that getting that vaccination was affected, effective in preventing about 80% of dose or cases in BC's healthcare workers and long-term care residents. So essentially they can now track when that group started to get vaccinated towards the end of December, beginning of January and into January, they can now see the corresponding drop in cases. That's such good news, right? When you see here we are in March, we're expanding the number of vaccines available and hopefully we'll start to see a decline in cases here too. And that's why the next few weeks are going to be so important and so critical. This is Mornings with Simi. We've heard the stories in the news, right? Former Chief of Defence Staff General Jonathan Vance is facing allegations of harassment and inappropriate behaviour with two female subordinates. Now, we know that Defence Minister Harjit Sajjan will be talking about this or testifying about this in Ottawa today. And these allegations are just the latest in recent reports of misconduct and sexual harassment within the Canadian Armed Forces. Here's the real kicker here with this story, though. It's also been revealed that the government was aware of allegations against General Vance back in 2018, but it sounds like they failed to investigate the claims or something happened there, but that it wasn't looked into three years ago. Now, that raises a question for a lot of employers out there. What is your obligation the moment you hear about a potential problem of harassment or some kind of allegation. What is your obligation at that point moving forward? We thought we'd go to the experts on this, right? Aliyah Varani joins us now, an associate at Samfir to Mark and LLP. Aliyah, thanks for being with us this morning. Thank you, Simi. It's always a pleasure to be here. Are you getting a lot of questions about this recently? Oh, not just recently. This is unfortunately a, something that comes up. I mean, I can think in my past week, there's at least two people that you know spoke to me about concerns about sexual harassment in their workplace. So it's not limited to, say, you know, these big stories that we hear about in the news. It is something that I think the average Canadian still faces in the workplace. So it's important that this information, I think, is out there both for employers and for employees. Okay, so let's start from the employer perspective on this then. Mm-hmm. If you hear about this, if let's say you're a manager and you hear about this, maybe not an official complaint, right? But someone says to you, you know, there's a problem over there with so-and-so doing so-and-so. What is your obligation at that point? Exactly. So, okay, this is what employers should do. As a starting point, they need to know that they have an obligation to maintain a workplace that is safe and free from harassment and bullying. Now, sexual harassment is one of the more extreme cases of harassment, they need to have no tolerance for that type of complaint and they have an obligation to investigate. So that's step one. They need to investigate every complaint, take every complaint seriously, figure out who said what, and then eventually make a decision with respect to whatever findings they have. Now, the law requires that this investigation be impartial and competent. And in most cases, it's recommended, I think also with the case with, with uh, General Vance, that this, there be an outsider independent investigator to do that. 
Um, a lot of people specialize in this and they do this as a job. It's not required that this be, say, an outside person, but it can certainly help. Um, you know, for example, if you have a complaint against your manager, you can't have that manager investigating or even that manager's manager because there could be seen to have right. some bias. So I guess the important thing here is just because you hear it in a casual conversation and it's not an official report doesn't let anybody off the hook. No, it doesn't. And um, so if there's any sort of question that this may be going on, the employer has to take that very, very seriously um, and really do their due diligence with every type of comment that's made. Of course, if you're the employee that's experiencing the harassment, the best step would be to file a complaint um, to ensure that the employer is aware about it. Um, And, you know, you need to give them an opportunity to remedy the situation. Okay, now let's say you're the person who is unfortunately subject to this harassment, Aaliyah. So do you have to make an official complaint or can you tell somebody and think that that, that's enough? Yeah, so there's a couple of ways you go about this. I think that if it depends on the situation, if you are unfortunately at one of those smaller companies and you know your employer does not have the procedure to deal with this complaint adequately, maybe you want to seek outside counsel from the get-go. But if you do have the proper channel in the company, you have to kind of give them that opportunity to remedy things. And it would be best for you to make a formal complaint, have them go through the investigation process. A lot of times you can still work while you're, you know, your employer is investigating the situation. Um, maybe just be separate from the person that's involved in the dispute. Maybe there's options for them to be suspended with pay so you can at least give your, your company an opportunity to kind of figure things out. But yeah. if that process is not working, then you have other options. I mean, employees in BC can make a WorkSafe BC complaint. WorkSafe will investigate if the employer has the proper policy and procedure with respect to bullying and harassment. Um, if that's not working, they've got remedies under the WorkSafe um, regime. They can make a claim for mental distress injuries, protection against retaliation. Um, otherwise, you know, if they hire private counsel, there's a couple of different options that they can go to from there. Right. It just sounds like you really have to protect yourself in the in these cases. You do. You kind of, I mean, it's unfortunate because you have to, it would be best if you can act a little bit as your own advocate. Of course, it's very difficult. So hard, yeah. Those, yeah, that's, that's the problem is that sometimes you just don't, it's all you can do to endure the situation. But, I mean, you do have options and certainly counsel are well suited to be your advocate when you feel like that's not a possibility and you just don't have the maybe the emotional resources to deal with that yourself. Um, For example, counsel could make a, you know, you have the option to make a complaint under the human rights legislation in your province because that would be discrimination based on sex. Um, You know, a human rights tribunal would review the actions of the company, assess whether they've violated those rights. Um, There is an option for protection against retaliation or, you know, you have a right to be free from reprisal. You can make, say, a constructive dismissal complaint on the basis that the employers effectively, you know, ended your employment relationship by virtue of their actions. And, of course, you know, you can have a counsel kind of guide you through those processes to get the remedies that are available to you if you just feel like you're not able to deal with that yourself. But are there any consequences, Aaliyah, if an employer doesn't properly investigate or doesn't do things the way you have spelled out? Yes, exactly. So... So if that happens, then um, certainly if somebody's hired counsel then or they're perceived as one of those claims, then that would be, you know, very condemning evidence that the employer is responsible or has not met their obligations. And when they when that happens, 
there are things called damages, which is just a fancy way of saying compensation or money that, you know, the employer has to pay to the uh, person that they've harmed or that they've harmed by virtue of not following those obligations that they're required to. Not only that, but say, for example, the employee brought a claim under human rights legislation, they may be required to have, you know, sensitivity training. They could have to issue a formal apology. Um, They have to, you know, there's procedural steps that they have to be in line with, certainly under WorkSafe BC rules as well. So, um, you know, there's real consequences for employers who don't do this. So when you hear about like this happening at the federal government level, does that surprise you? Or do you think, man, it happens in every workplace? Oh, my goodness. Well, I think the big problem here and uh, what would certainly help when we hear about cases of harassment in the government is having some sort of impartial or independent body that can really look into things because I think that the culture, if we expect it to change by itself, is going to be a very long process. And maybe in the meantime, we can do all everything we can to kind of have those procedural protections for people while we catch up, um, you know, with uh, right. with maybe the way that we behave to each other. So every time a story like this is in the news, Aaliyah, do you start to get more phone calls and questions and people wanting to talk about harassment? Well, you know, the funny thing about this is anytime there's a very highly you know, visible or publicized story, I think people... Um, are more aware of what that could look like, what sexual harassment could look like. Maybe they feel like if, as long as it's a relationship that's somewhat consensual, it's all right. right. And then somebody may learn, oh, no, you know what, if it's subordinate and, and a superior, maybe there's elements of power and control here. And anything that, you know, kind of makes these um, situations more visible to the general public can empower people to pursue their rights if they're not aware of what may constitute sexual harassment, for example. So, you know, any efforts by the news to get this out there is always helpful and, um, you know, just encouraging people to pursue their protections. Right. All right. Well, thank you so much for the advice this morning. So valuable, Aaliyah. No, thank you very much for having me. This is Mornings with Simi. Big story this week has been the news out of Surrey, where a Freedom of Information request has revealed the salary of the newly hired deputy chief at the Surrey Police Service. High base salary, higher than the salaries of some senior RCMP officers. It's also raised some questions about, well, if this is one of the deputy chiefs, what are the others making? What is the chief making? And it's definitely more than what Surrey is paying right now for administration and policing. So is this something that Surrey residents are prepared to pay for? Or is this just an example of that competitive wage environment that this is what you need to do in order to attract people to something that is new? Well, let's talk about this. How much did Surrey City Councillors know about all of this? Joining us is Jack Condale, Surrey City Councillor. Thanks for being with us this morning. Good morning, Simi. How are you? Good, thank you. Were you aware of the salary structure for the Surrey Police Service? No, I, I wasn't until uh, actually the FOI came out and it uh, highlighted that uh, between well, the top four positions are close to $1.4 million a year. Are you surprised? Oh, very much so. <laughs> I'm very much surprised. You know, the entire process has been damaged from day one and uh, damaged really, quite frankly, because of, you know, McCallum and his crew stopped thinking about public safety in a long time ago. Um, and we would look at Surrey, even today, if you want to increase that public safety, you know, we, we haven't added boots on the ground in three years. That's that's so true, right? No new officers. Uh, what what have you heard at Surrey City Council at that level? What have you heard about the development of this? Because, I mean, technically, we have been told repeatedly by Mayor McCallum that April 2021 was going to be boots on the ground up and running. Yeah, it's just been a vacuum of information, uh, quite frankly. And even when I have... Um, uh, 
you know, when I have uh, um, the residents ask me, um, you know, I can't even give them an answer. It's like, you know, when the, you know, the high-priced help and the spend doctors, if they can explain to the taxpayers what's going on, because I, as a counselor, can't. And we know there's been spend doctors hired now to do this thing. What do you mean? What kind, like, for what? Well, there's been contracts gone out for uh, media, uh, short-term media engagement, long-term media engagement. Um, and uh, the only way we're getting this information now as a counselor is through the FOI process. So what is the normal flow of information supposed to be like? Well, it's, a, it's a, an elected government body, so the information should flow very freely. Uh, but I can tell you, though, myself and some of my colleagues, uh, the only way we're getting information is by uh, reading those FOI requests, putting in a very sort of uh, questions that get deferred over to different departments. Uh, you know, from within the city now, basically all questions are sent over to um, the uh, Surrey Police Services. And, uh, you know, it's hit and missed to get an answer back. So as an elected official, you can really see just a lack of transparency. This is all operating in. Well, let's talk then about the reaction that you've been getting, because obviously this was a big story this week, I'm sure, in Surrey. What are yeah. residents saying to you about this whole salary issue? Well, I, I refer back to, uh, to the Premier's words. It's a hornet's nest. And people keep using that, even when we get the emails coming in from people, um, you know, and they're asking, who has occurred to stand up and ask for transparency in this whole process? taxpayers are, are frustrated. Look, we're, uh, you know, still in the pandemic. We have staff that have not come back to work uh, since the pandemic, since last year. Uh, some of our facilities are still struggling to come open. Um, and you know what? It'd make much better sense to use those dollars here today to invest in, in the facilities that we have and bring people back to work. We just can't afford this right now. Right. But is there any, is there anything that like counselors can do at this point? Well, it's used to highlight the issues. Um, highlight it, um, you know, shed some light on places where people don't want to have some light shed and and raise these issues. And I got to tell you, the Surrey residents have really stood up. Um, even though I've been in politics for a short time, I don't recall uh, something like this ever engaging so much of the community to stand up and say, look, we want information, we want transparency, we want accountability. And where's this money going? What's it being spent on? Well, when do you think they might be able to get some answers on that? Like when they get their property tax bill for next year? Oh, yeah, the property tax bills are coming out pretty soon, and people should do that comparison from last year to this year. Um, and you'll see the difference right there. It's a line item right in their uh, property taxes for Surrey that they'll be able to see the cost of, of policing. And don't forget now, you're operating with an existing police force and trying to bring in another one. So the overlapping costs are going to be paid only solely by the Surrey taxpayer. Now, what kind of communication has there been from the mayor on this? Well, the mayor generally sticks to, um, and then you know this, I mean, mostly ethnic uh, uh, media outlets. Uh, very rarely do you hear him on, on mainstream. And when we do, it's always um, uh, sort of hit and miss. Uh, over time, I've, I've gone to learn that exactly not everything that comes out uh, from the mayor is, uh, is uh, truthful and, and factual in the sense that, um, um, you know, he'll, he'll highlight a policy or something in a conversation somewhere, and two or three months later, you see it show up on council chambers. A perfect example of this is when he talked about the canal, or recently we talked about the road going through 84th Avenue. Yeah, explain that one to me, because I was reading about this in the news. This goes right on the edge of Bear Creek Park, right? Correct. It's right on the south side of Bear Creek Park from King George Highway uh, to 140th, and there's another segment uh, further to the, um, to the west that empties into Scott Road. Uh, so Delta's come back and already said, look, you know what? Um, we don't want it. Uh, residents in the area don't want it. You're crossing over two 
uh, streams. You've got King Creek and Bear Creek. And uh, on top of that, you're looking at cutting down, I think it's approximately 70 trees in the process, and it's right beside Bear Creek. Um, and I can tell you, certainly the residents that live to the east of this uh, do not want it. And we've been uh, barraged constantly for the last, I think, week uh, about, uh, about this road um, coming through, potentially coming through. Right. So has that come to a vote then at council? It was discussed this week, wasn't it? Yeah, it was a, uh, as in typical fashion here, four or five uh, split on council to even start the engagement strategy uh, and hire someone to come in to do the, not only consultation, but the preliminary design work as well. So there's a lot of unanswered questions. We don't know if it's going to be a two road or a two lane roadway or a four lane roadway yet. You know, Jack, just listening to all of this, whether it's a police service or this road project, uh, I think you would, Surrey residents listening to this would think, listen, what is working at Surrey Council at this point? Well, I think what what is working is the fact that we're able to highlight these issues and certainly engage and inform voters when they go to the polls here in about another 575 days that, look, if you want to carry on in this fashion, then there's an option there. But if you want to have something different, then get out and, and vote. And we always know that in municipal elections, we get the lowest voter turnout. But I think you're going to see that change this time in Surrey. Uh, people are frustrated. They're angry. Um, and it's just the lack of information and the lack of true engagement with the public. Okay, so then what do you say to Surrey residents who are reaching out, who are frustrated by this process, they don't like what they're hearing, uh, or maybe they want to support it? Like, what kind of process is there for people? What do they do? Uh, they advocate. Um, they contact your elected officials. You know, maybe in the past uh, three, four, five, six times, they haven't gotten an email back, but it doesn't prevent you from emailing them, calling them, um, engage other levels of government. Uh, that's been done as well. Uh, reach out to your neighbors even. And write to the letter uh, letters uh, to the editor. Um, you know what? Highlight the issues and the concerns that you have, and really educate yourself going into the next election. Okay, thank you very much for your time on that. Okay, thank you. Appreciate that. Jack Hundell is a Surrey City Councillor talking about the frustrations that some on council have uh, not getting a whole lot of information about those Surrey policing costs. As you heard him say, they also have to look. Imagine you're on Surrey Council and you also have to learn about it through the media and through freedom of information requests. That seems seems a bit broken, doesn't it? Now, if you're a Surrey resident and you want to weigh in on what you've been hearing about this week, by all means, drop me an email, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Now, in most of the province, vaccine appointments are only available right now to the oldest residents, right? 85 years and up. But in Prince Rupert, the decision has been made to offer shots to all adults who can be vaccinated. And that will be coming up in the next couple of weeks, just to get everybody vaccinated. The reason why? Well, it's a good one. Uh, Prince Rupert has seen high positivity and case rates. The numbers are not going down. So this was taken as a decision to help mitigate that. And Prince Rupert's pretty isolated. Can't just send people on to the next hospital there. But it's been tough for some of the people in Prince Rupert because there has been some pushback on this. Uh, People nastily saying that, oh, they're getting rewarded for not obeying the rules. And this is making politicians there speak out. So joining us now is Blair Miro, who's a Prince Rupert city councillor. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thanks so much for having me, Simi. Well, first of all, what has the COVID situation been like in Prince Rupert? How bad is it up there? Uh, currently, where we have some of the highest per capita case counts in the province, we've experienced you know tragic deaths of 14 of our loved ones in our long-term care facility. We've had dozens of our frontline healthcare staff test positive. 
numerous active exposure advisories in multiple schools and our homeless shelters. So it's obviously a you know a tenuous situation in Prince Rupert at this point. Has it been a tense time, would you say, for the community? Absolutely, yes. It, particularly since the Acropolis Manor outbreak, the, the long-term care, it, it just came so quickly from basically the middle of January on. It was a real shock to the system because Prince Rupert basically got through the vast majority of 2020 without any confirmed cases um, of community transmission. Now, I was up in Prince Rupert in August, and it seemed to me everyone was doing really well, obeying the rules. You know, the Mm -hmm. restaurants were doing really well. There was a lot of social distancing. Did something change along the way, Blair? Like, what happened? It's impossible to say exactly how these cases would have cropped up in Prince Rupert. Um, But when we look to where it all started, it's it's really impossible to ignore the the long-term outbreak uh, at Acropolis. But as far as you know, the reality on the ground. Prince Rupert was one of the few, if not the only municipalities to declare a local state of emergency when the World Health Organization first declared the pandemic. And we actually asked our residents to consider extending the 14-day isolation period beyond just international travel, but to anyone leaving Prince Rupert for domestic travel. Because at the time, you know, we, we only have an airport that connects us directly to Vancouver, and that was the hotspot at that point. So, I mean, we've gone above and beyond our uh, community. You know, when you compare us to others where you've seen anti-mask and anti-lockdown protests, the majority of Rupertites have been asking their leadership to be much more stringent. And so our city on the whole has been incredibly diligent in following the recommendations of, of Dr. Bonnie Henry. So what are some of, what is some of this criticism then that you've been hearing that you felt the need to say something about? I mean, ultimately, what it comes down to is when people are trying to suggest that we're somehow being rewarded for bad behavior, they're not aware of the unique circumstances of Prince Rupert. I mean, the evidence is in the fact that we didn't have any confirmed cases through almost the majority of 2020. We've been taking this incredibly seriously. But there are some unique circumstances that the province is is taking into consideration here. So in our perspective, they're responding to the data and evidence in front of them. You know, we're a rural and remote community on an island that has very limited healthcare resources you know, a handful of acute care beds that on a good day before the pandemic were already operating at or above capacity. We have some of the highest rates of poverty and vulnerability indicators in the province, which we know is a contributing risk factor to the spread. We also have the second highest proportion of Indigenous residents of of any city in Canada other than Winnipeg, who we know have been disproportionately impacted by this pandemic. And just recently in December, Northern Health actually had to announce that if you're not in a high-risk group and you test positive, you had to do your own contact tracing and notifications while simultaneously grappling with the virus. So all of these kind of constellation of factors, obviously, you know, we're at a very high risk here. And if the moral and ethical framework that the province is approaching this with is how to minimize loss of life, you know, protect critical care and break the transmission chain, what better way to do that? What has the reaction been like in the community then to hear that, okay, so vaccines are on the way, you guys are moving to the front here? I mean, obviously, we're incredibly thankful and grateful to the province, to Northern Health, to everyone that made it possible to have this community-wide vaccination rollout happen so quickly. I mean, timing is everything. It just so happens that these clusters in Prince Rupert have cropped up at the exact same time that Canadian and NBC vaccine rollout is accelerating as, as more supply is received. But it's incredibly bittersweet. I mean, we're happy to be prioritized, but the only reason we are being prioritized in the first place is because we've seen tragic deaths in our long-term care. We've seen, you know, dozens of our frontline healthcare workers test positive. We've seen this community spread in a really high per capita case count. So that enthusiasm is obviously tempered by that that stark reality. And do you feel that everybody's going to sign up? Is there a real willingness out there to get this vaccine? 
Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, I can't speak for, for every single human being in Prince Rupert, but uh, there is an incredible appetite to uh, for everyone to do their part, to do what they can to break this transmission chain and stop the spread. Well, Councillor Merrill, thanks for your time this morning. Thank you very much for having me. Thank appreciate you. Much appreciate it. And best of luck up there. That's Blair Miro, who's a Prince Rupert City Councillor. Uh, some people there have been discouraged by what they've seen on social media. People commenting and saying, oh, they're not following the rules on Prince Rupert. Now they're getting the vaccine to the head of the line. No, it's a different situation. It's just they have been so good there. I saw that firsthand myself, how good they had been there. And uh, now they need help. And I'm glad to hear they're going to be getting it. This is Mornings with Simi. Some news coming out of Ottawa this morning about the vaccine delivery schedule. It's certainly picking up for Pfizer. The Prime Minister announcing that the deliveries of the vaccine from Pfizer will ramp up to more than a million, at least a million, he said, uh, every week from March the 22nd until May the 10th. Uh, so that's just Pfizer. So we'll have more on that coming up in a few minutes. Right now, though, we're going to talk about home sales. Once again, another month, another record-breaking number of sales. It's just going crazy out there. So we thought, let's get an update on what we've heard. The BC Real Estate Association is saying that home sales went up 89% compared to the same time last year. And the house price of the, the price of an average home also has gone up to almost $890,000. So let's find out what the market looks like right now. Adil Danani is with us from Royal LePage West Real Estate Services. Good morning, Adil. Good morning, Simi. Uh, nice to be on the show again. Nice to have you. How busy are you these days? <laughs> it's been a, it's been an incredible, uh, incredibly busy time in the market. I think the activity we're experiencing at our office and our practice is very much so aligned with you know the stats that um, the Real Estate Association came out with and what the Greater Vancouver Real Estate Board um, you know have all um, released over the last week or so. So is it like, has the supply situation improved at all or, or is there just nothing for sale out there? So we are definitely getting to an elevated point in the market. Um, you know, I was, we, I did a bit of a chat with a bunch of industry folks in January and I said, look, my concern for the market is, you know, if we get to a point where people start, folks in the market start being more emotional versus rational, right? Um, and, and that fear of missing out kind of gets into the market and people start making um, you know, very, very quick decisions on big purchases. So I think we are at that elevated stage in the market. And when you and mean that, like we talk about emotions, is that the part where people just feel stressed out because they have to get into the market because they're missing out on something? Yeah, correct. Yeah. And, and I think that FOMO that we've discussed previously was, was at the heightened, you know, it had a heightened period in 2016, 2017. We're starting to see that enter the market again. And so I think it's very important in this environment to be prudent you know, to get a great agent in your corner because the market is moving at a very, you know, frenetic pace and, um, and, and price growth is really happening on a monthly basis. Uh, the stats that came out from the BCREA, you know, indicate that, you know, the sales are up 89%, you know, almost 90% year over year. Like that's a, that's a big number. It's a staggering figure. And I think, you know, like you, you asked about the supply e- equation, you know, we are, still in a very supply constrained environment. And when you have this heightened demand, you know, a drop in supply, you're going to see upward pressure on prices. And so until we see some supply relief, um, I think the pace of the market will likely stay very strong. I do sense a little bit of buyer fatigue coming into the market over the last couple of weeks, you know, folks that are looking for single family homes, which is like 
the hottest part of the market right now um, are are often getting outbid, you know, maybe three, four times. And, and there comes a resistance point as well where folks are like, you know, there's affordability and, and we yeah. were, you know, something that, that, was a, that was reachable before may not be reachable now. And so some folks we're finding are taking a bit of a breather, just wanting to see how things kind of unfold over the next, you know, 30 to, to 45 days. Well, this is what I was thinking, too. Like, I, I know some people who are looking for a house, and that was kind of my advice is like, just, you know what, when the market behaves irrationally, right. I don't think that's when you really, you don't want to play that game because it just, it could end up being so much trouble. I agree. I mean, at the end of the day, this is a domestic market. People are buying principal residences. There's not a lot of speculation taking place in the market just yet. And if you have a longer term horizon, you're not purchasing with the intention of selling, you know, in the next 12 to 24 months, you know, we know the market long term will perform well. And if you're going to be in the home five to 10 years, you'll be fine. But if you look at current day, you know, what's what are supportive mechanisms typically of a, of a real estate market? You have um, low interest rates. Um, you know, you've got immigration, job growth. We've got, we've got really one of those really pushing the market today. So if you took low interest rates out of the equation, we don't have the job growth. In fact, you know, we're almost at a, a double-digit unemployment rate, and we don't have any immigration. So I think low interest rates are really the catalyst that's pushing this market higher. Okay, so that also tells you, though, that if people decide that they're going to take a breather, this could all come to an end very quickly. You know, the, the markets are cyclical. They have lots of gyrations, like markets will move up and down, and that's normal. I do think that, you know, housing has been at the forefront of people's, you know, conversations over the last 12 months, right? The shifting housing needs during the yeah. pandemic people want more space or they realize, you know, they value certain things in a home that per- perhaps they didn't have before. But now that we're seeing perhaps the rollout in the vaccine and conversations evolving over the next three to six months, it may not just be, you know, conversations around housing, maybe like let's travel, let's, you know, let's, let's allocate our disposable income to having, you know, doing things that we typically used to do before. So, you know, markets are one of those things that are impossible to predict. Yeah. Um, but I think, we're at a point where we, it would be healthy for the market to start kind of leveling out a bit versus going, you know, at a month to month or year over year increase, because um, I think that would be healthy for the long term sustainability of the market. Well, it's interesting times. Adil, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure, Simi. Thanks for having me. Adil Danani is of Royal LePage West Real Estate Services talking about crazy numbers for the month of February real estate wise. Uh, But I think it's true too what he said there that some people are starting to think, you know what, I'm just going to take a seat until some of this craziness blows over because it doesn't feel sustainable at all. It is, I think, driven by the low interest rates and the opportunities out there and just not a lot of supply right now. If you want to weigh in, send me at cknw.com. 